we should sing a song. <laughs> we should sing a song. Is that going to be the new start to the podcast? <laughs> How's your singing voice? <laughs> My singing voice is awful. Although, actually, so while we while we talk about singing voices and uh, speaking voices, both of us are trying new microphones today, and so we may sound very different on this podcast recording to what we normally do. Um, if we don't sound so great this week, please bear with us. We'll get it fixed by next time. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the mics. It's only the mics. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not the voices. Speaking of last time, can you actually believe that we talked about upcoming Swift 9 features and absolutely failed to mention macros? <laughs> yes. What were we thinking? That's kind of bizarre. I did actually, um, I obviously when, when WDC started and um, they were brought up, it, it's, that immediately pulled it back. I'd also seen um, Paul Hudson's um, blog post about the Swift features, and it was obviously front and center right there. Um, yeah. And it was just bizarre. We completely, completely failed to mention it at the time. It's it's really curious how stuff can be so out in the open. And you, because we both were aware of it, right? I've, I've read the manifesto, but it completely, it's completely gone. I mean, the, Apple could really just stop with the secrecy because, you know, it's just there. People don't notice anyway. <laughs> Their secrets are quite literally safe with us. Yeah. <laughs> but they're also a great feature, right? Have you seen the two sessions of WWDC, the one by Alex Hoppen, which is the more introductory one, and the other by Becca Royal Gordon? I think I saw the, um, the, the introductory one. I haven't yet watched the other one. Yeah. I think there's maybe something we could briefly talk about with the macros, because... Um, not only did we fail to mention it last time, we actually did speak about macros before. And I was reminded of that when I saw that second session by um, Becca Royal Gordon. Um, and that is, you may recall the context in which we talked about macros, and that was the package by Kashikawa Katsumi, Swift Ast Explorer. Um, that was in episode 25. You may recall that's a website that he set up where you can paste in a Swift source code snippet and it'll give you, so you do this, you paste this in on the left hand side and on the right hand side, you see sort of like a, almost as if you do a, a um, you know, in, in Safari's dev tool, you can see the HTML underlying the page. Mm -hmm. It gives you the past abstract syntax tree of the source code and you can hover over the elements and it highlights the source code that corresponds to those syntax nodes and that sort of stuff. I do remember that. Yes, I think I even also linked to that in uh, the newsletter. Yeah, you did. And the reason I brought that up at the time, and I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it, was that I thought this is going to be really great for when you're writing macros. Because in, in order to write macros, you're going to be using Swift syntax. And I thought it would be quite complicated to sort of assemble the syntax nodes that you need to, that you can modify and then, you know, to create your macro. Um, and the reason I thought that is because if you read the um, vision, the macros vision document, it lays out um, a number of different ways in which you can do macros. And I guess the two sort of most common ones or the, the most easily understood ones are lexical macros, which is like C preprocessor -proce -pre type macro expansion, where you mm -hmm. effectively do like text replacement, right? You 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 
define something gets replaced in a preprocessor stage and then then the compiler runs and the other version and there's a there's a third one but this one that swift macros is actually using is syntactic where you manipulate a the syntax tree syntax nodes and then you create so you have input that's that's valid swift and then you can modify it and you you output different valid swift um, right but at the time i thought well okay this is this is really great but it, it, this is probably going to be a bit difficult to work with and the really interesting bit is that it actually isn't they've they've actually done it in a way that gives you the best of both worlds because with swift macros comes a a library swift syntax builder which is result builder um a result builder dsl that allows you to assemble nodes by just taking little source code snippets so if you have a very static thing that you want to do in your macro you know just expand something and like if you want to write uh, an initializer that's always the same um to certain types you can literally just paste the source code string as you would write it and that is going to be part of that syntax builder and and you don't need to fiddle with any syntax nodes you can literally just act as if it was lexical and under the hood that gets passed into syntax nodes and and returns so you don't need to fiddle with the details you can if you want to and that gives you lots of powers obviously but in very simple cases you can literally take source code and even interpolate stuff into the source code so it's it's really a really powerful mechanism i can i can only recommend watching that um session by becker royal gordon to get those details i i found that eye-opening in how easy it actually is to get started with it and not having to mm -hmm. to you know delve into the details of swift syntax um you know depending on on what you're going to do obviously that's very powerful and that's something you might need or want to do later on but for simple stuff uh, you can go a long way just with little source code snippets and stuff like that so that's uh, that's something i found really interesting and remarkable about how that's um implemented right that's great and the other thing about macros that was probably just worth mentioning is i think you asked the question on the last episode um did I think that there would be any secret features of Swift that would drop alongside whatever was announced last week? Um, and turns out that actually macros was the the key feature that that everything that was announced last week used, right? So there was nothing else needed. Well, and it was secret for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> I don't recall anything else in. The, I haven't caught up on a lot of sessions, to be honest. I've watched a chosen few um because last week was a lot about adding actually swift 5.9 support to to the swift package index so i was a bit um well that's it and let's let's talk about that for a second because as we speak um the build machines that we have uh in various data centers around the world are currently crunching through is it about seventy thousand builds to uh test compatibility with swift 5.9 uh with every every package on every com combination of platform and uh then obviously the new swift version yeah yeah exactly it's um, a bit more than seventy thousand, but off that order of magnitude i think we're about a, a third well we should be well over a third through now it was a third this morning so by the time you hear this we're probably done with it probably done yeah um yeah uh, thankfully it's getting a bit easier to set this up uh, every time we we have to do it there's some really tedious aspects about it and we've sort of managed to 
uh, whittle those down a bit and make it a bit easier to adopt new versions. Um, still, I'd, I'd hope there aren't more than two <laughs> versions of Swift per year that we need to adopt, but yeah. it is getting a bit easier, which, which is great. Yeah, and I think the main reason we briefly discussed whether we should pull the trigger and add it early, because last time 5.8, we waited quite a bit. We didn't add anything during the beta phase. But macros actually were, I think, the main reason we did it this time, because I think it's going to be really nice to be able to search the Swift Package Index for packages that have macros in them, so you can explore a bit what 5.9 offers. Um, and obviously for that to work, we, we need to support 5.9. Right, yeah. And we'll also start displaying, uh, so at the moment we currently display um, three different product types on the um, package page. We display the number of libraries in the package, the number of executables, and the number of um, extensions. And we will now add the number of macros in there so you can see for any package all four of the, the different product types uh, and how they apply to what's in the package. Um, but I think it's kind of, it's there's always a dilemma with adding new Swift versions of if you add it at beta one, then obviously we do this huge backlog process and and everything goes, we, we determine the compatibility uh, information for all the packages using a beta one compiler and we're not going to run that whole process for every single beta that comes out um and so it kind of relies on people actively developing packages if they want new beta update um uh, compatibility because they it will, we will only rebuild their package if they release a new version or move the default branch forward or something like that and if there are any changes to swift inside this beta cycle then we either do the whole big backlog churn again at the end or we just kind of say well you your code will have been compiled with one of the betas yeah i think it's fair during the beta process just to let it sit and i think a lot of the active packages automatically have changes of one sort or the other during that time we can probably we should probably we should consider just rerunning everything once five nine releases out. Yeah. Um, but I think during the beta phase that's fine. Plus, recent years, I honestly I think the changes between betas aren't dramatic. It's probably more around macro implementation sort of things that get sorted out. But we're not actually testing those bits anyway, right? When we build a package the macro definition doesn't even get tested. So right. that's, it's a bit like plugins, right? There isn't, there's a bit of a, it's a bit of a weirdness in, in what kind of package is that in terms of dependencies, right? We, we don't have a mechanism to actually honestly test a plugin or a, a macro in that sense. I wouldn't even know how we would do that. We like we do for package building in general. I mean, we live in an imperfect world. What can I say? <laughs> there we go. The other thing that came out of the conference, which um, uh, we actually had a issue open, sorry, not an issue, a discussion opened um, by uh, Get uh, Gunders uh, yesterday uh, about the privacy manifests and the package support for privacy manifests. Um, and I w actually watched the session video this afternoon for that. Um, and I think it's just worth talking about that as well, because that is a very obvious feature for us to add into our package page. 
So just to catch anyone up who hasn't um, seen that session video yet, the privacy manifest that you can now uh, embed within a package uh, give well, let me let me back up one more step, actually. So if you have an app and you are um, filling in your privacy nutrition label as you submit your app to the App Store, um, one thing that it is currently your responsibility to do is look at every single one of the third-party SDKs that you're using and try and determine what they're doing in terms of privacy. And usually that involves reading through terms of service and, um, you know, lots of lots of very vaguely written documentation the fun stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no documentation legal legal jargon um and so the new feature is that um sdk authors may now encode the things that they are doing related to privacy in a privacy manifest and include that in the in their uh, sdk their sdk package so fairly shortly within let's say six months we are going to get packages um uh, increasingly um include these files and it's a really great feature for us to add to the package page um the more i watched of the video sorry actually a short video i would recommend watching the the whole thing um but it, it became clear to me very quickly that there is an enormous amount of data that package authors can put within that file uh, and so we we certainly can't summarize it on the package page itself. Um, we may be able to give some kind of representation of like this package indicates that it does 13 things or something like that. Or maybe we just have to say this package declares some privacy implications and have that be a link to a documentation, uh, not a documentation page, but a uh, a full page of of what we're passing out. But actually, I think that brings me on to one other point, which is that obviously the plist file of this manifest is encoded with key names and, and that kind of thing. We're going to have to have all of the descriptions and definitions of each of these keys um, baked into our app somewhere, because I don't think there's an automated way to convert those keys into something readable. There is for the full application, so you can say, with like an Xcode project, gather together all of my dependencies and give me a privacy report that I can then submit to the App Store. But I don't think there's a way, and that seems to be in a readable format, but I don't think there's a way to do that for an individual package. Right. Maybe there is. Right. I wonder if um, SPM might have tools to gather those up, because I, I could imagine that on the command line you you would want to do it. Right, Xcode can, can do it, but often... There's an Xcode yes. build command. Um, perhaps, I mean, SPM would be even better um, offering the same thing. That would be nice. In terms of displaying it, I was under the impression um, that it is effectively, it represents the same thing that you can see in the App Store under the um, privacy nutrition labels. So I thought that might be a way of distilling these bits of info together, but I might be wrong. I I, I think, not sure how I mean, align. certainly those privacy labels are derived from the data in this file, but it's not a one-to-one -one mapping of keys. I, mm. as far as like, and I'm, I'm 12 minutes into my research of this by watching that video. <laughs> so I am speaking from an extremely uh, uninformed viewpoint here. Uh, but my, my impression of what I saw in that video is that there are, there are more detailed keys in there 
that some process narrows down to one of those nutrition labels. And I'm not sure whether that process is public or private. Right. Yeah. 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 That I got that sense too. I was just one. I, I am thinking though that we could. I mean, it would be duplication of effort. I mean, unless there is a way to actually get those results um, out of Xcode or Swift PM or something. I was thinking that we could do the same thing. Right. Distill it down into a view that looks very much like the nutrition labels. Um, yeah, and and even those nutrition labels. If you imagine three of those nutrition labels on our package page, that's quite a lot of space um, to take uh, to take up there. So I, I don't know. We'll we'll. This is not even a declaration that we will work on this problem. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like something we should at least uh, investigate seriously. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's great data to have if you choose dependencies. Yes, it's up there with license. I think to have that sort of info there. It's even, there's even mentioned that uh, there are certain, there are going to be certain requirements around certain SDKs. I don't know what the name was there. I think privacy impacting um, third party SDKs. There was supposed to be a list of, of pre-screened. Yeah, so there's a, there's a thing called required reason APIs. Um, so, this is to prevent fingerprinting. So th this is a technique uh, that um, right. uh, various companies use to try and uh, get around the tracking controls. So for example, if you look at somebody's uh, amount of disc-free space, if you even get access to a microphone and record like room noise, I've heard that they track people on. So if you, you get a, a, a recording of someone's room noise, and then if they're on a different device, but with the same room noise, you know that those two devices are the same person and oh wow okay yeah it's awful <laughs> um <laughs> so uh there's lots of there's lots of things that they can use to fingerprint a device that is not you know the official way of getting a tracking id and it was very clear in the video to say that that is never allowed and what they've done is they've added a whole load of apis now that you have to have a good reason to uh use and again you can use these manifests to document the reason you're calling the api that gives you the amount of free space left on somebody's hard drive yeah um and actually that brings me on to something else that that's crossed my mind as as i was thinking about this in the context of the swift package index and that is would we increase or decrease depending on which way way we decided to do it, a package's score based on how much or little um, of these privacy implications they they uh, they uh, kind of include in their manifest. Well, I think at the very least, the presence of a declaration should bump your score a bit, right? Because you give, you give people, that's, that's an easy thing to do because you give people information. We don't judge mm -hmm. the content, but the presence gives people the ability to judge whether they want to add it or not. And I think that's helpful and that should should elevate a package. Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it because what you don't want to do is penalize people for being honest with what they're doing. Like if they are collecting a lot of data, that's like we it's better to know that and I would I would feel slightly less comfortable reducing score based on how many boxes you tick in that in that privacy ma manifest but i really like that idea of just saying well if you've done if you've taken the step to include this you get a couple of points and 
with the rest we can deal with by adding filters right we we could have a filter that allows you to only select packages that have no privacy implications uh, and then it's up to the the you know the person searching for dependencies to make those choices make so, those trade-offs whether you yeah are okay with something that tracks or whether you don't want that at all so i think those were probably the the, the most um, relevant bits of uh, WWDC for the package index. Um, and should we move on to some package recommendations? There's a couple of things that I oh, there's more did want to mention. Yeah, I wanted to circle back very briefly to five nine, um, because one thing now that we've added five nine, um, and we're uh, now supporting packages that are five nine only. Um, there's a there's a case to to bear in mind, and that is around documentation generation. So if you add documentation to your package, what you typically do, you add the documentation target that you want to have documentation generated for. And specifically, you don't specify any Swift version when you do so. And that means we choose which Swift version we build your documentation okay. with. Now, what we haven't done by adding 5.9 is changing which documentation version by default we build with, um, which Swift version we build your documentation with, and that remains 5.8. So if you don't change your SPI manifest, we'll generate docs with um, 5.8. Now, if you have a package that is 5.9 only, obviously 5.8, the builds will fail, there will be no documentation. So in that case, or if you're interested to build with 5.9, you should set the key in the spi.yaml um, file, swift underscore version 5.9, which then would opt into building the docs with 5.9. So that's a little thing to be aware of. Yeah. Um, you also might want to change that back once 5.9 goes live. Um, so you're not stuck on 5.9 later on. Yeah, this is what I was going to mention, actually, is, is that when we when we ask people to make this kind of change, it's easy for them to make this kind of change because they need the feature in Swift 5.9 at this point. Then 5.9 gets released and nothing bad happens because they they, they are still on 5.9 and everything's happy. And then 6 comes out and they're still building with 5.9. <laughs> there's, there's an easy service we can think of, depending on how many people that do, we could even um, consider alerting people or even automating pull requests, I think, because we know which packages opt into we do. Mm -hmm. uh, 5.9 um, documentation generation. And you now we have lots of packages that generate docs, but it's also not, it's not thousands, it's um, hundreds. And the 5.9 opt-ins might be, will be a lot fewer still. So there might be yeah. something there to help out. Plus, you know, obviously all the packages that don't, specify tools version 5.9, which are 5.8 compatible, can just leave everything as is and right. keep generating the docs as they are. The other interesting bit is we've seen a huge traffic jump in um, documentation overall since WWDC. There have been a couple of packages announced that are very popular. Um, more on that mm -hmm. in a bit, I think. <laughs> So um, it's effectively doubled our documentation viewing, which which is great. Like 20% um, of our traffic is documentation traffic right now. Yes, I predict we're going to talk about that in the next section. <laughs> Indeed, we are. At least, uh, at least I've picked something there. So uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Shall we then?
Yes, let's do some package uh, recommendations. Do you want to kick us off? I can, and I can transition straight onwards to to that package that is driving a lot of that documentation traffic, and that is that is Swift OpenAI AI. No, not not Open AI. This is this trips me up so many times. Swift Open API Generator, uh, and that's a new package by Apple. Um, there's a WWDC session about this. Meet Swift Open API Generator. What this is is a package that auto-generates your network interface from a an open API JSON file, which is a file that many APIs um, ship that describes the API. So effectively, you can ingest that file with this tool and it spit out, um, I think it's structs, but effectively, you know, like an API that you can then use to interface with that, um, that API. So you don't have to write any networking code, really. Um, and that's really amazing. And what's what's even better, that package comes with really, really great um, tutorials, how how you set this up, how you use this. So if you're not familiar with open API, this YAML file or JSON file, it's, it's actually available in mm-hmm. both formats. What that means, what that looks like and how that works, it's, it has a really, really great tutorial to step you through the process obviously there's also the session that describes that i think it's also just worth mentioning at this point that open api has been around for a long time and this is not like open api itself is not new this is yeah apple kind of embracing and making it easier to interact with open api uh, specifications yeah chances are an api you're working with has an open api almost certainly yeah json file yeah so if, if it's modern, it, it should have. Um, if it doesn't, maybe you can talk to the team. It shouldn't be many, many backend packages that the backends are implemented with actually have extensions that, that auto-generate that file from, from that API that again. So you can actually, you know, generate code on both sides, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of magical. But it's, it's available for many, many packages backend um uh, frameworks have that um, ship with that or have extension that support that so that's that's really great it also comes on the client side with many um, implementations for networking clients so like for example if you're planning to use url session there's a another package that builds on top of this that gives you all the um, apis when you're working with url session there's one for async http client there's one for Vapor, there's one for Hummingbird. So for all of these, you you have sort of ready-made um, tools to get those working. And there's even another third-party one that just dropped this week after WWDC, Request um, DL, which is a networking library um, by uh, Breno de Moura, which is a, quite a nice networking package as well. It's a, it's a bit of a DSL. We had this in the past. We had a package that... Um, was a DSL to describe a query. This takes the same approach further. You don't just describe the query itself, you describe the whole uh, networking request in a DSL. So that's also um, a package that I want to throw in and mention mm-hmm. at the same time as this this one by Apple. That's request DL by Breno de Moura. So there you go. Really nice set of packages for not just backend, uh, obviously, this is more about the client side of developing apps that target um, 
APIs. And you tease talking about the documentation and never followed through with it. <laughs> so the nice thing about the, all these packages is that um, the documentation for them is hosted uh, by Swift Package Index. And it's um, wonderful to see Apple um, trust us with the uh, hosting of that documentation. And it's not it's not something we take lightly in terms of, uh, of that trust, because it would be it would be very easy for um, them to think, well, we shouldn't trust the third party site, even though they, you know, they are now a supporter of the site. Uh, but it's, it's, I think it's a really nice gesture that they trust us enough to, to host this documentation. And as uh, Sven said, we've seen um, some increase in uh, our documentation traffic because of it, because of these are new packages, people are checking them out. And in the readmes, there's, there are links to the, um, uh, the Swift Package Index uh, hosted documentation for them. Yeah. I'm really, really happy about this. Um, becoming a bit of like a, like in, in my work, I see, I often go to packages that I know we use and, and look at the documentation through us, even if it's linked externally. I really like that there's as a single place, I know where to look to find the docs. Um, I think I'm, I'm really, really happy about that development that when we aren't just, yeah about finding the packages initially, which is something you probably don't do all the time. Looking up docs, I really do all the time. I mean, even our own docs, like our SPI manifest file, I often go to that page through the, you know, the normal route to the package page, to the documentation link, to the docs. And it, it helps us, you know, the whole point of us um, creating this documentation hosting system was to make it trivially easy for people to host their documentation. Now, docs doesn't make it hard to host documentation. You know, it comes with a uh, a command where you can transform your documentation archive for static hosting, and then you can stick it on GitHub Pages, and you can host it that way. And it's not it's not an enormous amount of work. But I think one thing that we have done is that we have made it a trivial amount of work. Um, adding you know one word to a YAML file that you stick in your repository um, uh, root and What's really nice to see is that as more people start to trust that we're doing a good job with this, um, and Apple being the ultimate kind of uh, flag in the sand of like, well, if Apple are happy to, to trust it, um, uh, I think that really just, it moves the whole ecosystem forward because if it's so easy to host your documentation and it's so easy to add a couple of comments above every type that you make then we just start to enable a better documented swift ecosystem um and there's lots of people all pushing in that same same direction um and i'm, I'm just happy to be part of that i think it's great yeah yeah i think it's really great right you want to give us your first pick yeah my first pick is uh, coco ui by P-X9. Um, is that the cousin of C3PO? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, yes. <laughs> yes, there is, a, there is a GitHub username, uh, but even their commit uh, uh, author information is P-X9, so that's, that's all we have to go on. <laughs> Thank you for your work, P-X9. Um, so what it is, is a... Um, it's, it's actually similar to a package I've used in the past. And, and the package that I've used in the past is uh, SwiftUI Introspect by uh, Sightline, which is a company. Um, and both of these packages let you dig 
under the covers of SwiftUI. So if you have a SwiftUI uh, label, then it is likely, but not guaranteed, this is likely that under the surface, if you're running your application on iOS, that might be a UI label. If you're running on macOS, it will probably be an NS label. Um, and so what they what these packages allow you to do is they allow you to say, if the backing of this control is a UI label, let me inspect and modify the properties of that UI label. Um, and the reason I mentioned Koku UI specifically when I've already mentioned in the past and used Swift Introspect um, is that it adds a couple of nice little features, which is it has some, it has a few um, kind of extra bits of syntax or, or actually view modifiers that you can add on. So for example, it adds some lifecycle modifiers. So you can say, um, with a text, a SwiftUI text control, um, you can say, you know, .coco as a, mu a view modifier and get hold of the view controller, for example. But you can also add a view modifier for on view will appear and on view will disappear and those kind of lifecycle events, um, which may not be completely covered yet in SwiftUI. I mean, SwiftUI, moves forward every single year and there are less and less reasons to dig below the surface of SwiftUI every year. But that doesn't mean there's no reasons to do that. And I think this kind of this package, they're very safe. If they if they don't find the correct control underneath, they don't do anything. And so you, you don't really risk uh, your application crashing because of using this kind of thing. But they do allow you that extra little bit of control if and when you need it. Nice. Yeah, I did see that package and I was wondering exactly that thing because I do recall when I first looked or first saw Introspect that there was a bit of a warning label in the readme, if I recall correctly, you know, be be careful, this is, exp is exposing under the hood details which might change in the future. I did not see a warning like that in Coco UI. Does that mean there is, it's, it's, it's safer or more stable or is that just safe because it just won't do anything at all if if there's something wrong with the um, uncovering of the details? My understanding of both of them is that they will do nothing if they're not. Right, okay. There may have been a warning on introspect maybe early on, but certainly by the time I used it, so I used it for the iOS dev jobs uh, application. Right. And by by the time I used, the, used it for that, there was, if it didn't find what it was expecting, it would just do nothing. Right, okay, I see. Cool. Right. My second pick is called Close Enough by Seth Eisenberg. Um, and that's a, that's a really interesting and nice package. So this is for testing. Uh, and what it does is it ships a property wrapper that makes comparing floating point or floating point-ish values easier. Um, when I bring this up, you, you are probably immediately thinking about, well, XCT assert equal does have an accuracy parameter where you can specify if you compare to doubles, for instance, within which delta the comparison should mm -hmm. be um, considered equal, right? You can provide the accuracy and then if they're, you know, that close or or closer, they're, they're equal, which works great if you have a straight up double or float or something like that. The problem is if you want to compare structs that are equatable, but they contain properties that are floats or contain nested types that contain properties that are floats, that won't work, right? Because you can't pass in that 
accuracy parameter unless your type is a floating point type. But what you can do with this property wrapper is if you mark um, properties with that, and in, in my understanding is only in a testing um, um, context when you use XCT asserts, you can then specify the accuracy on a type by type basis to consider that accuracy accuracy for those properties only. So you can actually use XCT assert equal. You don't specify any accuracy there. Um, like individually, you specify it on a type level and it'll filter through into the um, structs that you're comparing. I hope all of this makes sense. It's always difficult to describe this sort of thing in a podcast. If you look at the readme, it'll immediately make sense if you've ever done any comparison of um, structs having nested types uh, with doubles, you know, you know how difficult that can be and how annoying that can be mm -hmm. to filter through that. This is a really great package to deal with this. Um, close enough by Zef Eisenberg. Anything that makes testing uh, more reliable and a little easier is good by me. <laughs> uh, my second one actually is similar to your first one in that it is a uh, an Apple uh, published package. Um, so the package is App Store Server Library, um, and it is published by Apple. Um, so a few years ago now, Apple published their App Store Server API and App Store Server Notification API. Um, so you can, for example, manipulate the the things that you can manipulate within the uh, developer portal once you've logged in with your developer ID, um, and also get notifications of things like um, uh, when a purchase was made, or you know, there's various events that happen during the purchasing cycle that you can uh, choose to be notified of uh, on your back end. Um, and there have been many uh, third party libraries that uh, have, have dealt with this, um, creating a swift uh, wrapper around those online APIs. Uh, one worth mentioning is uh, Bag Boutique by Morton Gergeson. Um, and that's been around for a little while. And in fact, actually, ironically, that is generated from the open API spec that <laughs> Apple published nice. for their App Store Connector API. So, you know, this is all, we're all going around in circles here. <laughs> um, but yes, Apple have now um, made an official uh, Swift wrapper library around those two APIs. And it's the kind of thing that you probably won't do this from within a uh, an application um uh but you certainly will be doing it if you if your back end is written in swift on the server this api is going to be uh, very useful to you and this library is going to be um essential was there a wwc session that came with that uh, yes I was wondering if that was introduced was one um and i thought it was linked from the readme file but it, oh yes it is so if you go to the documentation section of the oh, readme file there is a link to documentation uh which is um actually not hosted on package index that one has is uh, is on the apple developer site um but there is also a link to the um the wwdc video which is called uh, meet the app store server library very nice right my third pick is called Swiftly uh, by Patrick Freed. Uh, this isn't a source code dependency package. 
this is a tool and this is a work in progress tool. Um, it's a tool chain installer akin to Swift and Env, which people might know, or Rustup, uh, if we are talking about um, different ecosystems. What this will allow you to do is install Swift. And the idea is for this to be the, um, the official tool to do this. So this is uh, an SSWG project, um, the official offer, um, effort to bring in a tool like that to make it easier to install toolchains on, on all platforms. Um, right now it's uh, Linux only, which I find really interesting that that's the first platform that this ships for. Um, and it's really nice. It, it's not fully done yet, but I did want to highlight it early because um, if you work on Linux, that's already a really useful tool because it can be a bit more difficult there to install uh, Swift toolchains. So it does have install and use commands there which means you can just give it a uh, pick a, a name, like there are shorthands for certain Swift versions, like 5.8 um, would give you the release version. You can do 5.9-snapshot, it'll pull in the latest 5.9 snapshot and stuff like that. And then you can use Swiftly use to switch between installed versions, which is really nice if you want to experiment. And all of this works in, in Docker, um, obviously, so that's a very easy way to play around with this if you're on a Mac even. Um, in the future, there are other commands to come. So this is something that's that's actually um, different from Swift Inf, for example, which, which does some of this. It'll have an update command, so you can update a toolchain that you've installed in place. Uh, it'll also allow you to list available versions. So it's, it's a really nice tool to work with Swift on Linux. Um, and um, macOS obviously is in the works, so it'll It'll come to macOS soon. I'm not sure what the timeline is on this, but it is in the um, SSWG. So if you're interested in progress, um, they do publish the meeting notes every month or so. So you can see, you know, what's planned around this. Um, and yeah, it's it's now a, a um, project within uh, SSWG and you know a public um, package uh, that you can install. That's fantastic, yeah. And and again, like my comment about testing, anything that makes installing Swift on uh, Linux easier is uh, is fine by me. So I think that um, pretty much wraps us up for another episode. Um, we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and maybe more features of Swift that we missed in WWDC that we forget that we forgot about. <laughs> who knows, right? <laughs> who, who knows exactly? Right? See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye.